0: Or good morning if you're so unfortunate to be as in California, or somewhere down that way. I shouldn't say that. I just California used to be a beautiful place and still has beautiful places, but there's just too many folks there. <coughs> Here's a serious uh, announcement. It's uh, from Shirley Heitman. She has a younger brother named Melvin. He's a member of United. But uh, he's up in Kellogg, Minnesota, and he suffered a severe injury while logging Friday morning. He was out in the woods by himself, and they've got him in acute care at a Mayo Clinic hospital in Rochester. He's undergoing a brain surgery to leave pressure on his spine. He's paralyzed from the hips down. Uh, Melvin lay for four hours in 18-degree temperature, but was able to move his upper part of his body to keep from freezing. So I guess at some point, somebody helped out there and and got him in, but it sounds like a pretty severe spinal injury. (coughs) Here's another one that says, Announce the Wedding. What, what, What wedding are we talking about here? I guess there's only one coming up anytime soon around here, so I put... Parentheses V and underlined it V wedding. <coughs> it's on Wednesday the fourteenth at six p.m. Wednesday the fourteenth. That's his coming Wednesday, six o'clock. Also, everyone that includes everyone uh, needs to take all their stuff home after services today. Uh, they're going to begin decorating uh, the hall tonight. <clears throat> and we can't have anything on the tables or chairs, it'll just be a hindrance, so I know normally some of you leave some of your things, but please uh, consider that uh, everything's going to change in here tonight, uh, or beginning tonight, and it's going to look quite different by Wednesday. So you can help and cooperate by doing that. Well, I don't know that we have much much more to announce other than the fact the world's blowing up. Uh, I am interested in watching what's happened in the middle, happening in the Middle East. Uh, I know there was some provocation there with uh, the, the Palestinians throwing some missiles over on the Israeli side over a period of time, but uh, they've gone in there with a vengeance. The Israelis have and. <coughs> It seems in some ways overkill, although I guess, you know, if you, if you have a gnat about your head or a mosquito at night, and, uh there is no such thing as overkill if you finally get up and turn on the light because you've squatted at it for a long, long time and couldn't hit it in the dark. Uh, so I've, I've made my head hurt slapping at my head a few times over the years when there's a mosquito bugging me at night. try my best to slap it fast and hard, And I suffered more than it did, because it was gone. Uh, But they have a problem over there. But it seems that it's ratcheting up very rapidly, and now they've had some rockets come in from Lebanon as well. And it just makes me wonder what the plan is. Are they uh, bent upon turning the Middle East into a cauldron? And then using that as an excuse to go into Iran, which seems to be prophetic to me, looking at Daniel 8. Uh, But is it time? But it does appear that Edom is ready to make their move. Remember what we've read about how Edom would overcome Jacob in the end? And throw the yoke of Jacob off his neck, because he's resented ever since it happened that Jacob got the birthright and Esau did not. Uh, It was in Esau's heart and mind to kill his brother, and that has been an interminable attitude. Most of the so-called Jews who say they're Jews but are not, truly, they're Edomites for the most part in the nation of Israel today, (coughs) are making noise, just as the ones over here seem to be making their move. Remember the history said, or the prophecy that they would dwell in the fat places of the earth. The fat means the wealthy. So when you read these articles about the bankster Jews, it's not really Jews, it's mostly Edomites. And they have taken over the power and the wealth of much of the world, and especially of the United States at this point. And is it any wonder but as they have gotten control and now have decided to make their move apparently to destroy our economy and bring Jacob down, remember the book of Obadiah says that they will laugh at our calamity. So what are they doing? They're taking trillions of dollars and giving them to each other in these so-called bank bailouts. So they're taking everything every vestige of wealth that God has blessed this nation with and that we have earned over the last several hundred years and giving it to themselves as gifts. <clears throat> now that's the prophetic side of the coin of what's going on in Washington and New York, in London and other places today. So I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm not against Jews, I'm all for true Jews, And I hope that we all qualify as spiritual Jews. That's something to attain to. Christ came as a Jew, and we're to be like him. So there's nothing wrong with being Jewish. There's something wrong with Judaism. And there's certainly something wrong with a sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing. An Edomite bound and determined to destroy Jacob. You don't have to read every conspiracy paper in the world To understand that God's prophecies are what are coming to pass. So what you are seeing has to be, right here at the end, the fulfillment of what God told Jacob and Esau, or what Isaac told them, and what he said the future would bring here in the latter days. So I believe that we've reached the point that Esau is shaking the yoke loose and is taking total control and total charge. And those people are working with their comrades, their fellow Edomites in the state of Israel to help accomplish their purposes. So bear that in mind when you watch news or when you read articles uh, about what's going on of what God says is going to happen. And put it on the framework of what you see happening in the news. You know, a lot of people write a lot of articles and they come up with some conclusions, we're in trouble, but they don't know the outcome. They don't know where to go with it. They don't know how far and how deep these problems are going to reach. But we know, God says, that we will be destroyed and that they will laugh at our calamity. So I think what you're seeing is the beginning of that that collapse, and that calamity that they will laugh at. God says they will then be destroyed as a result of what they do to us, but at the same time, because of our sin and our moral degradation, these things have to come upon us, and God uses them as part of the rod to punish us, to get our attention and to humble us, so that we might eventually obey God. I read an article the other night about... uh, It showed some of the prophecies and showed how Israel will uh, win out in the long run. I mean, the people of Israel, including all the tribes, not speaking specifically of the Jews or the Edomites in Israel. (coughs) And I couldn't help but reflect that here's a man that thinks, reading those prophecies, that we're only going to go down so far and then we're going to win. And what they don't understand is that there's a problem there. Physical Israel is going down and will not recover until Christ returns and sets up the millennium. But spiritual Jacob, his true church, will really win out over the powers that be of Satan in this world. And will have domination over them even during the times of the Gentiles. Forty-two months when they are going to trample the world and Israel in particular. But God's church is going to be given power over them until the last three and a half days before Christ returns. Then they will win and think they've gotten a great victory. Only to their chagrin to see a resurrection And then real fear will set in. So I think we're in those days now. I think it would be impossible at this point for us to have a recovery and then go through this again. It looks like it's a downhill slide now to the utter collapse. Uh, And when it happens, there's going to be big time trouble. So... I just wanted to comment on that. I think it's a good time to watch the Middle East and what they do next there, just as it's time to watch what they're doing with this country and its finances and its manufacturing and its jobs. And it should be very clear by now that those powers that be have in mind to utterly destroy. They've taken our manufacturing and shipped it overseas, our jobs. And Americans are going to begin to wake up to this as it hits home on Main Street now. And it's going to lead to trouble and violence in the land. The Scripture even says there will come rumors one year and another year, violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So we have this coming, I think, very shortly. And the conditions that you see occurring right now are going to lead to it. And probably it's not too far away. Okay, let's get back into our series. Uh, We talked about Hosea and God decrying the way the first marriage with Christ went because the bride was all aglow with the idea of, uh, yeah, we'll have a covenant with you and we'll do everything you say. But she did not have the character the understanding, the background, the knowledge, and the learning to know what that meant. She had not counted the cost. She had not understood what it would take to make a good marriage with Christ himself. And as a result, things did not go too well on her side. She was not able to live up to it. We have the whole... Old Testament, basically, as a testimony of what occurred, why it occurred, and what needs to be done about it. And then we do have a few places in Jeremiah and Isaiah, well, scattered all through the prophecies, that indicate that something better is coming along. God has not given up. chapter 31 of Jeremiah 31, and I believe we read it last week, but I want to review it briefly. It says, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, it won't just be written on the doorpost, it won't just be in the book, but he says it will be written in their heart, in their mind, so that it's always there that it guides your thinking, it guides what you do, where you go, who you see, how you conduct relationships on this earth. Because God's will and His law is your guiding light. Now as human beings, we tend to be like ancient Israel was, and what makes us happy, what makes us fulfilled, what makes us enjoy... What relieves our boredom is what tends to drive us. But his spirit is outgoing. It's not for satisfying self. It's for satisfying, and particularly in marriage, our marriage partner in all aspects of life. And the reason marriages break up is because of selfishness, self-centeredness, Vanity, ego, pride, and self, essentially. And that's what broke up God's or Christ's marriage with ancient Israel. She was selfish, self-centered, wanted her own way, wanted to do as she pleased, didn't want to follow his guidelines, or live the kind of life that he wanted to live. You see, match-ups are so important in marriage. So that you think alike, react alike and so often that is not the case and that is one of the primary reasons behind why God wanted people to marry within their own race within their own culture uh, within a belief set and this extended to the New Testament making it very clear that we should not date and marry outside the church. Because our belief system has become entirely different than those in the world. Now the boys, the girls, the young men and women out there might be quite attractive. They might have good personalities. They might be fun to be around in some respects. But they have an entirely different viewpoint on life. And those two viewpoints being different, are going to lead to problems in the future. I don't know all the reasons God made all the different races, but he made at least four major races, use different skin color, in fact. And it, it is very clear throughout the Bible that God intended people to marry within their racial uh, genetics and culture and background. And his main concern with Israel, or one of his main concerns, was that if they married outside Israel, that they would learn heathen religions, heathen customs, that did not come from God. And indeed they did. Solomon married a lot of Gentile women, and it led his heart in a wrong direction. So that principle carries over to the New Testament. So it isn't a matter just of physical attractiveness or personality likes or we like the same foods or, you know, whatever people use. But it goes much deeper than that. Now God took a young lady who had been humbled, been in slavery for many years was not, in that sense, uppity or had a vain approach because they were living in abject slavery. And he put Israel through that and let her grow up in that so that hopefully she would be humble, meek, and ready to take instruction and guidance in a correct way of life. But there was an inherent problem in that She had grown up in the culture of Egypt. Jacob did not have the culture of Egypt when he moved to Egypt during time of birth. But over time, through the generations, over 400 years, they had taken on the Egyptian gods, their cultures, their way of thinking, and they didn't know anything else. In fact, it said... When they were told, God is the one to save you, they said, which one? We have many here. Didn't even know the true God. So it was a culture shock when Moses brought the law down the mountain. It was culture shock when he gave them the statutes and judgments. They were foreign to them. It wasn't their way of living. It wasn't what they were used to. Totally different. They said, sounds good though, the lightning, boy, is flashing and the lights are going off. This is exciting. We're scared. We'll do anything you say. You said you'd bless us, so wow, we'll we'll obey you. We'll do anything you say. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And even as Moses was gone back up the mountain, They went into debauchery of all kinds, because that's the culture and the background that they had, and they were only that far removed from it. Do we begin to understand a little, from that Old Testament picture, what our problem is today? We grew up in this world, most of us, who are now baptized, not all, but most of us, In the culture of the world around us, we thought the way they thought, we listened to the same music they listened to, we went to the same movies, we ate the same foods, we thought along the same lines. And then, our mind was opened at some point, we came across the truth, and began to learn a totally different culture. A different way of thinking than what we had grown up in in America and apple pie and baseball and Chevrolet. And all those things that used to be so what we thought good about America. Chevrolet's about gone. And baseball's priced itself and become commercial and isn't what it used to be. And nothing in our American scene is the way it used to be. But it's difficult To make the change, isn't it? Now we said at the time we were baptized, yes, I've counted the cost, I'll I'll follow this thing through, I'll put my hand to the plow or I have, and I will not turn back. I will change my way of thinking. I will be transformed, is what we promised. And we meant it, didn't we? I'm tired of being the way I am, I want to be different, I want to change. But somewhere along the way, that became difficult. Just as ancient Israel, we found that we still had lust, vanity, selfishness, greed, envy, and lust, and utter selfishness, and that to continually do things the way God would have them done was not quite so easy after all. We found we were spiritually lazy and didn't want to pay the price spiritual growth. And then, when the going got a little bit tough, and some of the leaders of the church began going back into pagan ways, the church departed wholesale in that direction. And some just tried to maintain the status quo, to be like they had been. You know, what I had been and what you had been was not what God was after. He has given us His Spirit. Let's look at a couple more scriptures here. Uh, Isaiah 59, verse 21. Let's pick it up in 19. So shall they fear the name of the Eternal from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Eternal shall lift up a standard against him. Now, this is speaking of the time that Haggai 2 talks about when God is going to raise a standard, and he's talking about Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses there. He's going to set him as a standard against the world. So this is a very end time prophecy in the time that we are entering right now when the church is going to begin to turn to God and his remnant gather and God will have to set a standard or a witness against the rest of the world. So this is the here and the now. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Eternal. So as I said in the announcements... Spiritual Jacob is the one to whom God will look and the ones will give, that he will give power to. Physical Jacob, or the rest of Israel and Jacob, will go down. But those who will repent, who will change, who will be transformed, who will be different, are the ones that he will come to Zion to see. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Eternal. My spirit that is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth nor out of the mouth of your seed nor out of the mouth of your seed's seed, says the eternal, from henceforth and forever. So this final repentance at the end of the age, the final gathering of those who will repent, will never change again. And our children, and our children's children, will then grow up in the millennium and will not depart from God. Now, this scripture has been here for thousands of years, and people have read it over the years, and they hope that their children would obey God and be blessed by God. And to some degree, all these prophecies have to do with every generation of people that have ever lived, because to obey God is to receive blessing, and to disobey God is ultimately to receive cursing on any people, any time, anywhere, throughout history, especially to Israel to whom it was given. But, this scripture has far more meaning for us today than it ever has any other generation in the past. Because even though it might have been partially fulfilled in Abraham's, Isaac, Jacob's children, those people did again depart from God, didn't they? And they had to go through captivity and punishment. And that cycle has been repeated more than once. Israel had good kings, bad kings. Good kings, bad kings. And so often their children did not follow in the ways of the fathers. So ultimately, for a full fulfillment of this prophecy right here, it has to be for our generation only, and primarily, and finally. Because it is only this generation, brethren, whose children and children's children will never turn away whether our children are converted now and are faithful to this end time and a part of the bride of Christ, or whether they live on into the millennium, having been protected from these things that are coming, there they will obey God, and their children will obey God. So we have a promise here that could only be fulfilled in the final generation, because it says, Forever from henceforth and forever. The henceforth and forever part has never applied to any other generation than this one. So we have an absolute promise from God here that if we will obey Him and live according to His new covenant where He pours His Spirit on us, the we, and our children and grandchildren will never depart from, her, from him, henceforth and forever. What an incredible promise. And for us in particular, because no other generation could ever read that and say that's talking about now and my own children that they could name by name. Our children should take confidence and hope and inspiration from it as well, that through our obedience, they will be protected through what's coming, and they will have opportunity to live in a peaceful, happy world. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing. Apart from this promise and the others in the Bible, I would really hate to be a parent with small children right now. Knowing what is coming on this earth and what would be their future or lack thereof. Do we realize how incredibly we are blessed to be here and now and understand what's coming and how we might escape it? So his spirit is going to make a lot of difference. They didn't have the Spirit of God in them at that time. But they will have. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land... They defiled it by their own way and by their doings. So here he's saying, just in a brief sentence, what I just explained. Their own doings, their own self-centeredness, their own way of thinking, utter selfishness. They defiled it by their own way and the things they did. Their way before me was as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. God just judges by what we are, by what we do. And when they entered into the heathen, and where they went, they profaned my holy name when they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Eternal God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. It isn't our goodness, it isn't how wonderful we are that makes God want to deal with us and revive us from our physicalness, our physicality, our physical thinking. It's for His holy name. He chose Israel to be His people and to be the bride of His Son. But she turned out unfaithful, ungrateful, disobedient, selfish, and rebellious. And would not do as her husband wished. So divorce came. And she went into captivity. And hopefully she would learn something. But he is going to make this thing work for his name's sake. Now he is a father. Almighty God is a father. And he loves his children. And he is not going to allow the name of God. Now, you might have the name of Jones or Smith or Wesson or something. But he has the name of God. And he is not going to allow his name to be profaned. He is going to stop the profanity. And he will stop it through death and the lake of fire, if we will not respond. But he is going to see that his name is honored. That it is the greatest household name there is. So, rather than letting rebellious children go their way, and drag his name through the mud, and the manure, he is going to fix it. For his sake and the sake of his name. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. So we have drugged name, God's name through the manure, haven't we? But he is going to fix it, rescue it, make it all right, make it honored and praised again. The heathen shall know that I am the eternal, says the eternal God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Well, God is after a people, and in this context, a bride, who will be an honor to his name. Now, in the first marriage, she did not honor his name. Now, he is bringing out a new marriage covenant. And this time she will bring honor to his name. Now do we see here why it is so important that we conduct our lives in such a way as to bring honor to God. It's not easy to do. Because by nature we're selfish and human and dishonorable, unfaithful, unrighteous, uncaring and unloving. That's why we need his spirit so that we can be different and not be like all the people around us. Can you say that physical Israel today is an honor to the name of Almighty God? Look at our nation. Look at Britain. Look at Australia. Look at New Zealand. Look at South Africa. Look at places where we know Israel is. Many countries in Western Europe. Could you look at all these cultures and say now there is a people that honor the name of God Almighty that he would be happy to say these are my children and I love them look at them world I don't think anybody with any realistic viewpoint whatever Would say that our cultures in Israel today are godly. Very ungodly. Intellectually, morally, any way you want to name. We do not reflect God's way of life. And God is not making a marriage covenant with physical Israel. And in fact, He never will. Those people in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, will not ever be part of the bride of Emmanuel the king. They will be part of the family. They will be children. The increase of his family and his kingdom will never end. And they will have a wonderful situation, both physically and later as they're changed to spirit beings in those periods of time and become a part of the family of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with being in the family of God. A lot of you people have children, don't you? I do. And there's no shame at being part of the family, is there? It's nice to be part of a family. There are often kids who don't have families. But whatever your family name, pick a number, pick yours. It's nice for the children to be in the family. And they're looked upon and loved as family. But there is a closeness and a bond between a husband and a wife who were not physically related, who become married and become one. And there is a bond there that is deeper than any other bond, or should be, of human beings. Even of a mother to a child. Now, we could get nitpicky there, I suppose, in some respects. Because the love of a parent to a child, mother, a father, either one, can be a very deep, abiding love. But God intended marriage to be even closer, if possible, in which they become one, and leave father and mother, the rest of the family, and cleave to one another and have their own family. And those children help build the family, but the father and the mother are the building blocks of that family. So the relationship between Christ and his bride, spiritual Israel, the church, is going to be even closer, and they'll work closer together day by day, year after year, millennium after millennium, than with any other of the spirit beings to later come. There will be that absolute closeness. That is why he is so interested in righteousness, in obedience, in right spirit and attitude and willingness and of a ready mind in us. Because he's going to have to live with us forevermore. Now, he gave us on this earth a way out, didn't he? We can die and get out of it. Because it is only a physical union. And is only there until death do us part. So, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of it is about all you have to take. Or enjoy, depending on the circumstance. But a lot of whether it's enjoy it or endure it, depends upon our character, and the way we treat one another, and how we interact. And we can make it a happy, loving relationship, or it can be bitter and mean and angry. You see, most people only think of what will make them pleased at the moment. And that's why we have fornication, and adultery, and misuse of money... And selfishness in relationships is because we think more for ourselves and of ourselves than we do our mate. And as a result, we have problems. Do you see why it is so important that we teach our children from the time they're very small? Faithfulness, righteousness, cleanness of living morally and mentally so that they are then a prepared person when it comes time to be married they haven't been sleeping around with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 200 500 different people they haven't been spreading their emotions here and there they haven't submitted themselves and subjected themselves to a lot of filth that seemed to them maybe while they were partying to be fun but if All our parents are teaching boys and girls the right way to live in purity and cleanness in mind and body. Then when it comes time to get married, they have something to offer one another. Something to give to each other and continue to give throughout their lives. Mentally, emotionally, sexually, physically, uh, financially, every way. They've learned how to manage emotions and sex. They've learned how to manage money, how to budget, how to conserve, how to put God first. In every way. Then they're more prepared for marriage. And our marriages should be happier and more solid. And should have much more meaning. But something you cheapen by misusing and abusing what God has given us. And he's given us a lot of different things that can be wonderful, pleasurable, good things in marriage, but which can become cheap and common if misused, abused, in wrong ways. So it's important that we instill within our children The knowledge and understanding and help them learn to control themselves so that when it comes time to be married, they have something worthwhile to give. Not something used and abused by everybody already. See why it's so important. Christ was a perfect husband. He married a woman who was far from it. And the marriage just could not and did not work. Now this time, he's going to be sure that his bride is what she ought to be. That she is prepared and ready to be married to a perfect husband. Now none of you girls here have ever married a perfect husband. At some point you realize that. You've been trying to change him ever since. Good luck. You might make some progress, sometimes, some of the way. But you're not going to turn him into perfection, I'll guarantee you, in this life. It won't happen. Nor will he turn his bride into what his view of perfect is. Even though some men try and they're on their wives about this, that, and the other thing. You can't change her to be perfect. The only hope you have is for both of you to obey God in every possible way you can. And if you do that, you will have the love of God, and it will transfer to your mate, and you can have a happy, productive, good relationship. But that's what it takes. Marriage out in this world is, for the most part, not very good. And in this country alone, more than half wind up in divorce. And far more than that are miserable and unhappy, but stick it out for the sake of the kids or finances or whatever reason. But a truly happy marriage is pretty rare in our country. And it is even fairly rare, or was in the church, but hopefully we're growing. Hopefully we're learning. Hopefully we can change some things so that things get better. So what does he continue to say here? Uh, verse 25, I'll, I'll sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. So in the marriage Uh, scenario he takes something which has been ungodly and through the blood of Christ cleanses it, washes away sin and we are to be a new person transformed by the spirit of God to think differently than we used to so first of all you have to take away the crud, the uncleanness uncleanness, the sin get her headed in the right direction And then he says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now that doesn't mean carnal flesh. That means tender, loving, kind, gentle, as opposed to hard-hearted and selfish. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So when he gathers the end-time church together, he's going to gather them into their own land, the land that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's part of the promise, is that that is the place he will gather them to. So wherever you see the end-time gathering of God's faithful, you will know, without any question, that that is the place and the spots that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there will be an absolute proof because this is an absolute promise. Wherever he gathers his end-time people who will be the example to the whole world, where he gathers them will be the same land he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, is it going to be here, the American Southwest, or is it going to be in the Middle East? Answer that question for yourself. But when the time comes, you better be in the right place. Because that's where God will gather His people. That keeps coming into everywhere we go now, since we've understood that there may be some things we didn't understand in the past. And now when you read promises, you have to take that into account. And that will be one of the ultimate proofs right there of where God originally had Israel and where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived. Now let's go to Joel. This is very important right now. In chapter two. <clears throat> He's talking about blowing the trumpet and alarm because things would be coming apart and famine and pestilence and disease. So Joel is now beginning to happen. You see more and more that more people are starving around the world and the foodless foods are bringing disease and lack of health to our whole nation. There was a time when our life expectancy in this country was getting longer now it's getting shorter, Uh, not just from wars, but now from sickness and illness and plagues of disease. When I was young, you hardly ever heard of cancer. Nobody had cancer. What's that? They had cancer? What is that? Diabetes? We knew everybody had sugar diabetes and didn't know anybody that had it. Maybe one person in town, you know. Heart disease, a little more common, but not all that common, especially among young people. And now we all know lots of people, relatives, friends, acquaintances, who have cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. There are people right here in this room who have probably all of those things. I don't know if anybody at the moment in here that has cancer, but we've got some with heart trouble and some with uh, diabetes for sure. It's everywhere. It's increasing. So this book is set in that. And he tells us to quit worrying about all the things that we are concerned about. Verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, which we've done more than once. Gather the people. Set aside the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegrooms go forth of his chamber, and the bride out of her closet. And the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the ports and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Eternal, and give not your heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Now this is where we are, right now and in the few, next few months to come where God says, put aside all these physical human things and seek God with your whole heart. Now that's where Paul was coming from in 1 Corinthians 7, when he said, maybe the time has come not to even marry or have children. We're very close to that. We have a wedding coming up this week, and I don't need to throw cold water on that, but... We're entering the time when we need to be thinking about, are we going to be saved? Are we going to have the heathen rule over us and the martial law and Gentiles coming in and taking over our country and making slaves out of us? These are dire, scary times we're entering right now. More and more Americans are having their income and their jobs cut off. Now I made a little story or a joke out of Honey, let's get married. I got a job at Taco Bell a few weeks ago. Because we're not properly prepared. But you know, those Taco Bell jobs and those Burger King jobs are getting where they may even become scarce. Because people are losing high-paying jobs and they're willing to do menial labor. Uh, I'm trying to say... uh, low pay, uh, minimum wage labor, in order to even feed their children. So, you know, six months ago and around this area, every store you looked in, whether it was I mean, all these fast food restaurants and all that, they all had signs, help wanted, almost all of them in the window, because construction was booming and retail was booming. Six months to a year ago, maybe I better broaden it a little. So those jobs were going begging, because people could have higher paying jobs in a booming economy. And then the breaks went on, people began to lose jobs, construction went down the tubes, now retail's going down the tubes, and all those places where you could apply for jobs like Macy's and Mervyn's and Circuit City and, you know, on and on it goes, are going under. Maybe there aren't as many signs in Burger King and Wendy's as there used to be. I don't know. I haven't noticed lately. But I have seen people going without work and having trouble finding work. Herbert Armstrong used to tell us if you don't have work, you should be spending eight hours a day minimum looking for work, not just make three or four applications and say, Well, I tried but make a job out of finding work that pays. If you really want to work, and you're willing to work hard, and you will find somebody that will give you a chance, you can still find a job. There aren't many people who really want to work and be productive to get their pay. They want to go, show up, do as little as possible, and get paid for it. But if you'll show somebody that you're willing to truly work and be productive, they're looking for you. They're trying to find you. They just don't know where you are. Getting them to give you a chance should be the only problem. Because once you get a chance, you would go for it. Do the best job of anybody on that staff, wherever it might be. Because you are here to live the way Christ himself would. And we are prospective brides of Christ. And he has a very high standard. He wants a woman that he would cherish and live with forevermore. Not until death does us part, but eternally. And that should be our main focus, emphasis, and desire in life. Is to become the kind of person he would want to marry and live with forevermore. And when you see this world coming apart, you know that time of the ultimate judgment is upon us. And that's why he said, even set aside marriage, set aside children, set aside this and that... And let the ministers weep and howl at the altar for the sake of God's people. So then it goes on down and it talks about God's people who will obey. It says, verse 21, Fear not, O Lamb, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. Now, this is in the context, in the midst of the horrible things that are about to come down. And he says he's going to do great, good things for a few. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit. Remember Isaiah 41, he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness. Seven churches are going to have representatives among his faithful people who represent his bride. Now Paul, James, and John, and David, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not going to be here because they're dead and waiting in their graves. And the end of Hebrews 11 tells us that they're not going to precede us, but they have to lay in their graves until we're ready, and until it's time for the marriage to occur. It even says at the end of of Revelation 11 that it's time to give reward to the holy prophets and the men of old, along with us. So, yes, in a way, the patriarchs and the apostles in the early New Testament church represent God. They are a testimony in print of the right kind of living and of the errors they made. But we are the living witness of God at the end. He says several times in Isaiah 41 to 44, right through there, you are my witnesses, speaking of spiritual Jacob, his church, right here at the end. Now, we don't put ourselves in the same category, do we, as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and James and John and Paul and Peter. Those are figures of the past we have good examples of, and they seemed to be truly spiritual, righteous people. And indeed, they were. But they themselves recognized they weren't perfect, like Paul, who said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. An oh wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death, Then he said, thank God I have Christ to deliver me from it. So he had his trials and troubles. But can you see, What we are to become. We are to become flawless. To bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So we think and act like he did and does. And that we here at the end time are to be an end time representation of what kind of bride he is marrying. And we are the only ones alive and breathing that the rest of the world can look at as witness to what he is achieving. We're the only place they have to look. They don't have Peter and James and John and Paul wandering about. They only have us. And in us they are supposed to see a perfect bride of the Son of God. That's what we're called to be. Now that is truly scary. We are not to fear what man can do, who can kill the body but not the soul. We are not to fear the new world order, as Isaiah 7 and 8 tells us. We are not to fear Mojave counting, planning, and zoning, or anybody else. But I'll tell you what's really scary is if God looks down at you and at me and says, There is the example, the witness of all people on earth of whom I wish to spend my entire life with and for my son to marry. Now that is scary. If you don't think that's scary, look in the mirror. Because every one of us falls far short of what we ought to be. Now, in that perspective, do we begin to understand maybe a little bit better why we have to go through sickness, through pain, through misery, through trial, through tests, through fear of this world. To be tried in the fire, if you will. Persecution, animosity, hate which will be kindled against us very shortly. We've had a few little trials and tests, but nothing compared to what's coming. That should scare us witless, spitless, to think that God would point to us someday. (coughs) Are we ready for this? Are you ready for God Almighty to show His power, to show His arm, to show His mighty strength and incredible miracles? With His faithful ones at the end, are you ready for Him to point His finger and tell the whole world, look at those people? They're my son's wife to be. The ones he is betrothed to. The ones he's going to marry real soon now. Now that should scare you, if anything will. Are you ready? Am I ready? For God to point us out? No, we can't hide behind the rock. God is going to do this in such an incredible way that the world cannot miss it. The rest of the church cannot miss it. That's the girl I'm going to marry. Right there. You ready for their scrutiny? You ready for the world to look you in the mouth, check your teeth and your eyes, walk all the way around you and Examine you and say, This is the bride of Christ? Sure, sure. Tell me another one. Are we ready for that? We need this vision. We need this picture. We need this understanding. Because that's exactly where this is headed. And we need to be prepared. And that's why we have trials and troubles difficulties of all kinds. Because we have to be tried in fire. We have to go through a lot to prepare us and get us ready. Now this is coming down the pike pretty quick. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. That even says in Haggai, has has the vine born? Has the fig tree produced? Well, no, not yet. It's coming. Same language here in Joel 2. Has it? Verse 23. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. God is going to cause God's people to begin to have strength and power. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal, your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. I think that's a specific prophecy, that in the first month of one of God's years, God has given us a little bit of blessing, a moderate amount of blessing, understanding to this point, but at some point he's going to pour forth all the rain at once. What like showers of bl- rainings of blessing. Now, of that which comes in the latter part of the year, in the first part of the year, all at once in the first month. Do you think people will see that when he begins to bless those who are faithful to him in that way? You know, when a young Man and woman decide to get married. There comes a time when he says, Will he and she says, sure. Or whatever they go through. It's usually a little more emotional than that. And then he announces to the world, or they do, we're engaged, we're going to be married. And they hold up their ring to show the world. This, this is for real, it's got a diamond on it. We're not just talking here, this is going to happen. And Christ is going to, very shortly, pour out the former and the latter rain on the one that is to become his bride. And he's going to hold her hand up and say, Look, world, this is the one I'm going to marry. I'm engaged to her. I'm going to come back soon and marry her. You'll be there for all the world to see, to scrutinize, to look at. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. Did he send devourers spiritually in the church? Yes, he did. But he's going to restore all the pain and the hurt and the suffering and the misery and the uh, Laodiceanism and the repentance and the abject frustrations that we've gone through. And seeing our friends and relatives and loved ones depart from God, it's all going to be changed. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the eternal your God that has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. I think you could add again to that. We have been ashamed in the past. Never again. This is an end time prophecy. People in the past have been blessed for obedience. They've ultimately been shamed again by their kids and grandkids. Israel has always been shamed again. Physical Israel is now being shamed before the whole world again. They do not like what they're seeing, and they're about ready to destroy us as a people and as a nation. And we'll be utterly ashamed. But those few who do obey and do fear their God, are going to be held up as the bride of Christ and blessed beyond measure, beyond comprehension. The future is nothing but bright for those who will take hold of the new marriage covenant in the spirit of God and move forward with it. resplendent, shining glory is ahead, even physically on this earth. As much as is possible. do we begin to see a little bigger picture of why God has to bless his end time gathering. He needs an example to show the world. And out of the many he has called, he is currently choosing a few. To be there and to single out as, hey, this is the one I'm about to marry. Now notice two levels of blessings here. Verse 23 said, I'll give you the former and the latter rain in the first month. As we read on down, you'll never be ashamed. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward, sometime after the first month, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So he is again going to pour out his spirit in power, just as he did in Acts 2, with the beginning of the New Testament church. Those who had access first to the new covenant. And he gave them power and signs and wonders and healings of all kinds. So that the apostles' shadows passing over them caused them to be healed of leprosy. And all kinds of diseases. Those were the first of the bride of Christ in the new covenant. Now, he's included some from the Old Testament whom he gave his spirit. But he really poured it out there in Acts 2, didn't he? And Peter could only think of Joel 2. He'd read it. He knew it. Boy, this must be that. Well, it was the start of that. And it was powerful. And it did impress me around, and 3,000 and 5,000 in one day were converted. And says, this is the power of God. But Peter was reading it a little bit out of context, and he thought, when he saw that, that the day of the Lord must be near and Christ returning, and that the clouds and the darkness and everything would happen in his life. He thought this whole thing was about them. But it wasn't. It was only the first chapter. And now since then, we've had several chapters of mankind's existence and life and experiences in trying to obey God. And right here at the end, we're in the final chapter. What are the two most interesting chapters of the book? The first one where... The stage is being set for the story. And you're trying to learn all the characters and what they'll do and how its stories want to develop. And then the last chapter is the most interesting because that's where it all comes together and where all those plots and subplots are brought together for a grand final climax of the story. And we are in the last part of the last chapter. The last chapter began with the calling of Herbert Armstrong except in that woman's religion and the Sabbath and God calling many. And the climax at the end is when he will have chosen a few because he has such an incredible job for them to do. Now didn't the apostles have a pretty incredible job to do? And what they held up And scrutinized by the people around them. And ultimately even killed by the people around them. Now if anybody stands up for God here in this end time, they're going to kill them. And the final two, who are the more formal witness, not like the rest of us as God's witnesses of his bride, but the final two are going to be killed as well. Because they will have made the most obvious witness against. And they'll be hated just as Peter, James, Paul were. And killed as well. The brethren, he is going to pour out his spirit in power. And this end time in such a way that it will far surpass what Peter witnessed and preached about on the day of Pentecost in Acts. Because this is the final chapter and the bride is now being completed. And he's called thousands here at the end to represent him and his family and the bride of his son. There are going to be dreams and visions such as has never been before. I think that we are going to see, whether this year or next year, I won't predict. I'll predict events, I will not predict years. But in the first month of a year in our very near future, we're going to see God pour out all kinds of blessings in the first month around Passover time. And then afterward, probably at Pentecost, because God works in patterns and history repeats. On Pentecost, we are going to see visions and dreams and power such as the church has not experienced since Acts 2 and far surpassing what was experienced in Acts 2. Because the final chapter has to be more climactic more dramatic, more powerful than the first chapter? What if you wrote a book and you put all the fireworks in the first chapter? And it was all downhill from there to the end, and then it said, well, I guess that's the end of the story, blah, 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 the end. It's not the way you write a book. It's not the way you cast a movie. The powerful, dramatic part has to be at the end. We are going to have more pressure put on us and we're going to be expected to perform at a higher level than the early New Testament church was. This is going to be a worldwide thing and an example and a witness to the whole world. And we will come under far greater scrutiny And we will have to have far more of God's protection than they had in those days. Now, he opened prisons and let them out. He allowed them to be stoned and live, as Paul did three times, or to be stoned and die, as Stephen did. Paul was rescued many times from shipwreck or stonings or whatever, only to finally be killed. Israel took God lightly when they entered that marriage covenant at Mount Sinai. They weren't near as serious as they should have been. And they laughed. Now, he's going to give us more. This new covenant, this new marriage, this new opportunity to be the bride of his son is going to come with his spirit and a spirit of power now, we have God's Spirit indwelling in us now. We've been begotten of it. But, like a child in a mother's womb, you don't feel anything for the first month, second month, third month. You begin to notice a little swelling and things are changing on the woman's body. At some point, that kid begins to kick and thrash and move around in there. And just before it's time to be born... You can sit there and watch that tummy and go whoop, whoop, this direction, that direction. You'll see mommy go oo because he kicks her liver or her heart or something in there. He gets far more active. Now we started out with God's Spirit just conceived. But as we grow, we'll become more active will become stronger. And God says He's going to pour out His Spirit in power. Now you're going to see, before this is done, how the feasts all fit together to give a picture of a Christian life and God's family and what marriage truly means. Now we're just seeing glimpses here and there as we talk about it. But I wanted to focus somewhat today on what God is hoping for and expecting from us. He has high hopes for this marriage. He wants this one to work and work good. So he's given us better promises, hasn't he? He gave them promises of physical blessing. He gives us promise of eternal blessing and eternal life, peace and prosperity and happiness and joy and enjoying our children and children's children forever, without them ever departing from His ways and leading happy, productive, wonderful lives. He's promised us His Spirit and His power to give us the strength to transform ourselves to be different than we used to be. We have to bridge the cultural gap between God's family in the families of this earth that we've been a part of. See why he says, depart from Babylon, get away from her, don't be a part of her society and her civilization, be you different. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, so that you don't even look anything like it anymore. You look totally different than the world. And he's going to hold us up and say, This is the bride to be of my son. Look at her. Isn't she the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? This is the prettiest girl has ever walked. She's full of love and kindness and gentleness and giving and serving and helpfulness. She's here to serve, to give, to help. Whatever my son does, she's going to help him do it. Be willing. She'll never cross him. She'll never go her way. She'll never be selfish. She'll never look for other lovers, other ways of life, other cultures. She'll always be faithful and righteous and holy for my son. That's what he's hoping for out of you and me. And not only are we now begotten, but we're also going to have his Spirit poured out upon us. And he'll bless us in such a way that the world simply cannot deny it. They will hate it. They will be jealous that we have been chosen to be the bride of Christ. And they will hold up their own Christ. And they will hold themselves up as his bride. And they'll hold up their society and their new world order of things to be the millennium of the kingdom of God. And it will be a fake, false, pretentious, arrogant, selfish, carnal, miserable mess made of iron and miry clay... The feet will break and will fall on its face because they do not have the character, the obedience, the attitude, the willingness to serve, because it's going to be totally selfish. They're going to hold up the people. We'll give you a Volkswagen in every drive, a Honda, we'll give you a nice new home now that you've lost your home's world. We'll give you a chicken in every pot. We'll give you anything you could ask. Because we're the new world order. And people, out of selfishness, out of greed, will glom onto that and say, Oh, you saved us! But anything built on greed and jealousy and selfishness will turn inside out, come apart and end in disaster. American marriages are based on that, and that's why most of them are failing. We have an opportunity to be prepared as the bride of Christ himself and have the character to see it through so that we live in giving and loving and sharing and helping And serving others, outgoing concern, as Herbert Armstrong termed it, because that leads to peace and harmony and health uh, health of a marriage and of relationships. And that's what he's asking of you and me, is to have that kind of heart and mind and attitude. He's going to bring us to a certain point, and it's frustrating, isn't it, for us to consider these things in Scripture or me to stand here and talk about it. And each one of us realize we're so far short of being the ideal bride in the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. We find our minds going into areas they should not be. And those thoughts are not held into the captivity of Christ. So it's frustrating. And it could be discouraging. But realize that when he opens these blessings we're reading about here in Joel, they're mentioned also in Isaiah 54, among other places. But he says, the righteousness will be of me. Not our righteousness, but his. And when he pours out his spirit. But you know, he's not going to do that until he sees a people that will accept it correctly. He poured out his law through Moses they were not ready for that, and they rejected it. Said they would, but didn't. I do, but I won't. Now when we come to be engaged, betrothed be to Christ, to be baptized, we have to say, I do, and I will. And that's what he's looking for. And if we then show that we're going to do, and that we will do, There's coming a time when He's going to pour out His Spirit and His blessings and His healings in such a way that will amaze us and it will bewilder and amaze the world. That's what is there for us, brethren. As the bride of God. The God family. Let's understand Let's prepare ourselves to be a perfect bride for a perfect groom. It's a big order, and we need a lot of help. But he's promised his Holy Spirit. He'll pour it out on us. So let's move forward and look forward to that day. Because we've already been betrothed to Christ. When we repented and said, I'm not going to be like I was anymore, I'll be different. I'll walk in your ways, serve you. We made a commitment. So we're already committed. Now we have to go forward and consummate this marriage. That's coming soon. Are we ready? No, we're not. Let's get ready. Because it's not just pie in the sky. This is something that's literally going to happen, and God is literally going to point to a group of people at the end and we can be included in that and say, this is my bride, and I'm well pleased. The rest of you ought to be like cheese. I want to be ready when he says that, and I want to be part of it. And it's scary because I've got a long way to go. So what do you do when you have a long way to go? You keep on walking. You get prepared. So you'll be Ready. When he says, there's my brother.